From Public Radio International, I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad. During the Cold War, the Soviet Union used the media to undermine foreign powers. Now Russia is at it again, and while the goals are the same, the methods have changed. The big change between what they tried in the 1960s and 70s and what they're trying now is that back then we didn't have social media. Now Kremlin-backed troll farms are pushing out disinformation, and Russian state media is trying to create confusion. Russia is putting out messages that make it seem like there's no objective truth. So what can the United States and other nations do to fight back. They put out X and we chase it like crazy and we run ourselves ragged. I think there has to be offensive strategy too. So in chaos, Russia's disinformation wars next on America Abroad. From Public Radio International, this is America Abroad, the show that brings global issues home. I'm Madeline Brand. Today on the program, we're going to look at Russian disinformation campaigns, both online and in state media. Some are calling it a new front in a new Cold War. We begin with a story that starts not in cyberspace, but up in the skies. Russian warplanes have been buzzing Western civilian and military aircraft as part of an apparent campaign of intimidation in response to Western economic sanctions over its action in Ukraine. Provocations like these led the United States and its NATO partners to respond with a show of force beginning in July of 2016. For the first time since the Cold War, multinational troops will continuously rotate through four countries in Eastern Europe. As part of this rotation, German soldiers were deployed to Lithuania, a Baltic state formerly part of the Soviet Union. Jeffrey Gedman, a senior fellow at Georgetown University, picks up the story from there. Of course, for historical reasons, German soldiers in that part of the world, in particular with certain generations, it can be a little bit controversial or a little bit sensitive. In the middle of the year, Germany invaded Russia. Every citizen in the Soviet prepared for the most colossal war in history. So what happens? A story is put out that a young Lithuanian girl is raped by a gang of men speaking German not far from the barracks of the German soldiers. An anonymous tip sent by email to Parliament. Criminal, a group of German-speaking men devastating, and a lie. Girl in a it wasn't true. German army barracks. An attack Lithuania's chief prosecutor says never happened. The Lithuanian and the German authorities together traced that this was Russian disinformation because they wanted to sow distrust between the German soldiers and the local population. See, these Germans, they haven't changed. They're still imperialists. They're still here to dominate us. They're still untrustworthy. They still take our women and abuse our women and rape our children. A lie. But they're looking for things like that day after day after day. Can you drop a little bit of poison in a wound? German Chancellor Angela Merkel meeting with Lithuania's Prime Minister on Thursday. She said the incident is proof governments need to remain vigilant. Now imagine that times 10, times 50, times 100, where they see vulnerabilities and they work to exploit it. It's very nefarious. Today on America Abroad, we'll hear more stories of Russian disinformation and attempts to sow chaos in Europe as well as the United States. We'll learn how Russia uses its state-run media to give a platform to conspiracy theorists and how it persuades viewers to doubt the accuracy of other news outlets. 
and we'll look at the evolution of internet trolling from individuals to large troll farms. And finally, what can be done to counter all this? But first, what happened in Lithuania is nothing new. Throughout the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, the KGB spread fake news and rumors. And some of what they did looks a lot like the fake news campaigns we see today. You know, it worked then, and maybe they're trying to have it work now. That's Kimberly Martin, a political science professor at Barnard College. One of the things that they did was try to undermine particular American politicians. They went after a senator from Washington, Henry Jackson. Scoop Jackson, who was one of the big engines behind the Jackson-Vanik Amendment. It put restrictions on U.S. trade with the Soviet Union. And so they would not have liked Scoop Jackson very much. So the KGB spread a rumor. You know, at that time, if we go back to the 1970s, it would have been shocking if someone had been gay. The KGB forged FBI documents stating that Scoop Jackson belonged to a gay sex club. You know, we've seen those things more recently. Um, The best example is that they tried to make some insinuations about the French President Macron when he was running for office, very similar to what they did with Scoop Jackson. The KGB didn't just go after politicians it didn't like. It had bigger aspirations to turn Americans against each other. Take Martin Luther King Jr. In the 1960s, the FBI tried to discredit him by painting him as an extremist. The KGB also tried to discredit him, but in the opposite way. They did that by planting uh, sources in actually African newspapers with the hope that they would be picked up by American newspapers, saying that he was too peaceful, that he wasn't being strong enough. And the goal apparently was to try to turn the American civil rights movement in the late 1960s violent. More recently, Russian social media accounts posed as Black Lives Matter activists. They spread memes, they organized protests, and they did this to stoke racial tensions in the U.S. The big change between what they tried in the 1960s and 70s and what they're trying now is that back then we didn't have social media. It's very difficult as an outsider to get a story planted in an American mainstream newspaper because you can't buy a story. This type of Russian information warfare came out of Soviet political culture. The sense of being constantly under threat and of believing that Russia is up against everybody else in the world is something that both fits with that longstanding Soviet culture and that fits in with how Putin seems to see the world in current events terms. But it wasn't conventional war that Russia was worried about. It was mostly about how foreigners might use domestic sources of opposition to undermine Soviet rule. Just this notion that every time that something goes wrong in Russia, it must be a a Western agent um, who is actually causing it to happen. That has just a lot of resonance from the old KGB culture. As a young man, Vladimir Putin was immersed in that KGB culture. He was a KGB agent in Dresden in the twilight years of the Soviet Union. In 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed and Boris Yeltsin became president. President Yeltsin came to power. It was probably the most democratic period ever in the history of the Russian Empire, if you will. That's William Courtney. He's a former U.S. ambassador to Kazakhstan and Georgia. There were political reforms, economic reforms, but the security sector in Russia did not get reformed. You know, the military, the former KGB, other parts of the security sector. Instead, Yeltsin just split them up. Here's Kimberly Martin. What it effectively meant is that there was nobody overseeing what these new agencies were doing. There was no personnel change, so it was the same people in the same jobs under new bureaucratic names. But a lot of KGB agents opted for a career change. 
So, for example, Vladimir Putin went into politics. And so we now, looking back a quarter century, you know, we are seeing a circumstance in which the security sector of Russia is really in charge now. Those are the people running the Kremlin, making the big policy. Meanwhile, many other ex-KGB agents went into Russia's newly formed private sector. Some of those KGB people became very much enmeshed in Russian businesses, and especially in Russian businesses that sort of blurred the distinction between state enterprises and private enterprises. And so what we saw was this intermingling of business interests and intelligence interests that has really very much continued to this day. Throughout the 1990s, Russia focused on strengthening its economic and diplomatic ties with the West. When Putin first came to office as president in 2000, he presented himself as being an economic technocrat, and he talked about cooperating with the West, and early on there was a fair amount of cooperation with the West. But it wasn't long before the U.S. snubbed Russia, first by pulling out of a key ballistic missile treaty, and then by going around the U.N. Security Council during the 2003 Iraq invasion. The West, and in particularly the United States, made it very clear that it no longer needed Russia as a security partner. It was like a slap in the face to Putin. And then there was the Russian economy. The Russian economy remains very dependent on oil and natural gas. And so when oil and natural gas prices were high, Putin could afford to do whatever he wanted to do because money was pouring in. But when oil prices fell, Putin could no longer deliver on his economic promises. Then, in 2011, Russia held a parliamentary election. A major rally is underway in Moscow, and demonstrations are being held in dozens of other cities across Russia, all to protest Sunday's parliamentary election. Critics say it was rigged to favor the party of Prime Minister Vladimir Putin. It was the biggest protest movement since the Soviet era. Putin clamped down. At that point, he had to find some other way to justify why people should continue to support him. And the thing that he fell back on was that he provides order. Well, who is providing disorder? Um, Whoever provides disorder are the people that are trying to undermine Russia from within. And that probably harks back to his KGB heritage, that, of course, it's the West who's trying to provoke disorder in Russia. Before the 2011 election, Russia was already drifting from democracy. It's just been this slow, soft reimposition of authoritarianism. But after the protests, things sped up. Putin tightened his grip on the press. You've seen a dismantling of any sort of free media in Russia, anything that's basically independent. Boris Zilberman is a Russia analyst at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. He says that most Russians get their news from networks controlled by the Kremlin. The Russian people have really been the guinea pigs for this information warfare for the past 18 years. After perfecting these information warfare tactics at home, Russia used them in Ukraine. So what happens is Ukraine is in the process of trying to gain closer association with the European Union. Andrew Radin is a political scientist at the RAND Corporation. Ukraine has long been in a sort of uncomfortable position of seeking uh, closer relations with Europe for trade ties, while at the same time also seeking to have strong ties with Russia. It's not just economics. It's also culture and language. Ukrainian identity is split between the East and the West. People in the Western part of the country are are more likely to insist on a, a strong Ukrainian national identity. People in the eastern part are more likely, let's say, to see themselves as part of Russia. In 2013, Viktor Yanukovych was the president of Ukraine. 
He was more pro-Russian, but he still wanted to strengthen Ukraine's ties with the EU. Yanukovych is, is attempting to negotiate some sort of association agreement with the EU, and then President Putin talks to him to convince him out of it. Hundreds of thousands of demonstrators gathered denouncing the government's decision not to sign a far-reaching trade deal with the European Union. Pushing riot police back from the Kiev Square. Independent Square, also known as the Maidan. And that really is the start of the Maidan protests in, in late 2013 that eventually escalate and lead to Yanukovych leaving power. Yanukovych was replaced by Petro Poroshenko, who is more pro-Europe. For Russia, that was a big problem. So Moscow took advantage of that east-west split that already existed in Ukraine. There's been reports of the GRU, which is Russian military intelligence, creating fake comments on news sites, creating fake social media profiles. Russian forces attempt to seize and control Internet access on the Crimean Peninsula. Russia drummed up support in Crimea and then went in militarily. Move forces towards the border with Ukraine, where they hadn't previously been stationed, and very quickly seizes the territory of Crimea. Initially, Russia denied it had troops in Crimea. The soldiers had no insignia on their uniforms, but they carried Russian weapons. Vladimir Putin said they were, quote, local self-defense forces. And Russia then annexes Crimea, effectively admitting all of the things that they've done there and that there was Russia acting. Russia didn't just lie, and it didn't just put out propaganda. Its subterfuge in Crimea went deeper. Russia is undermining sort of objective reality. They are putting out messages that make it seem like there's no objective truth. It wasn't long before American State Department officials in Ukraine started picking up on all this disinformation. Molly Schwartz brings us the story. When Russia annexed Crimea, it sent the U.S. State Department scrambling. Sri Preston Kulkarni was working there as a foreign service officer. He remembers how things unfolded next. The State Department actually tried to bring together a collection of Russia experts and public diplomacy experts to try and do a counter-messaging task force. Shri was tapped to be the campaign director for this new Ukraine communications task force. He began to notice some strange things about the way that the conflict was being described on Russian media. I saw people claiming that the CIA had put dead bodies inside a plane and then purposely shot it down Uh, in order to create propaganda against the Russian government. People were repeating that story again and again, and I realized we had gone through the looking glass at that point, and that if people could believe that, they could believe almost anything. Shri and his task force were responding in real time. They noticed that there were a few influential names who were driving the narrative on the Russian side. We would have certain uh, actors who would pop up again and again. Number one on that list was Konstantin Rykov. He was active on Twitter and a lot of other social media, like LiveJournal, Vokontaktia, and Odnoklasniki. He was fluent in the language of the Russian internet culture. He had helped invent it. Here's Alexander Shmelev. He says that starting in the mid-90s, Rykov started to be actively involved in the development of Russian internet while he was still a teenager. Shmelev used to work with Rykov at a propaganda online news site. It's called Vizgliad. Rykov owns and produces it. Shmelev says that Rykov was at the roots of something called the Padonik culture. These were young people who were coming onto the internet and inventing their own language there, and generally making a mockery of everything, having fun, and creating a sort of subculture. 
Шмелов remembers that in those days, the political discussions on the Internet were mostly anti-Putin. The Internet was one of the few places where the opposition movement could communicate freely. When Putin first came to power in the year 2000, he wasn't paying much attention to this kind of activity online. He reportedly didn't use a computer. And he was busy tightening control over Russian newspapers and TV news channels. But then, in 2005, things changed. People took to the streets as the Orange Revolution unfolded in Ukraine. There were massive protests in Kiev against the Russian-backed presidential candidate. Many of these rallies were organized online. Eventually, Putin and his deputies took notice. Putin's administration needed more people to be pro-Kremlin voices on the Internet and to drown out the anti-Kremlin voices. They needed people who understood how to make information attract attention and go viral. Enter Konstantin Rykov. Though technically independent, he had direct ties to the executive branch of the Russian government. He was especially close with Putin's deputy chief of staff, Vladislav Surkov. Shmelov says that the situation was like this. On one hand, Rykov had his own commercial entity that was nominally independent. But in reality, of course, it worked in partnership with the president's administration and received a lot of orders from them. Shmelov says that sometimes there were situations where they would publish something, and Surkov's assistant would call and say, no, please, replace this article, or please publish something about this issue. In 2007, Surkov, the deputy chief of staff, started organizing fundraising events for Rykov's projects. That same year, Rykov was elected to the Russian parliament for the pro-Kremlin United Russia Party. And then, in 2008, Russia annexed a region in Georgia called South Ossetia. The Russian government had a stake in making it look like the people living in South Ossetia were overwhelmingly in support of seceding and joining Russia. Artificially boosting an online presence of people who wanted to join Russia seemed like a challenge. It wasn't clear to Shmelov where they would get these Kremlin backers. But Rykov figured out a way to boost the numbers. Shmelov explains that Rykov attracted new people into social political conversations on the internet, people who weren't there in the first place. For example, by advertising his articles on entertainment websites, websites with jokes, porn sites, and so on, so that people who weren't interested in politics, like youngsters who were just browsing naked women, would see a link, get interested, click on it, and gradually they joined this community of supporters for the government. For Alexander Shmelov, this kind of blatant manipulation was too much. He left Rykov's website in 2008. But Rykov stayed the course, and his loyalty paid off, in a very literal sense. In 2006, he was making 400,000 rubles by running Vizgliad, by 2010, he was reportedly earning over 8 million rubles per year. Rykov also made a play to influence audiences outside of Russia. He got active on Twitter, where now he has over a quarter million followers. Eventually, he caught the notice of the U.S. government. Of course, I remember Rykov. Michael McFall served as U.S. ambassador to Russia from 2012 to 2014. We spent a lot of time thinking about him and his colleagues in terms of what were their objectives. He was very active in talking about foreign policy in particular. Was he paid, coordinated? Uh, these are the fuzzy lines that the Putin government deliberately keeps fuzzy. Also a bit fuzzy is Rykov's role in helping Donald Trump win the White House. Back in 2015, Rykov built a website called Trump2016.ru. He began actively supporting Trump online. The impact of Rykov's campaigning is unknown. 
But Shmelov explains that Rikov had his reasons for boasting about helping Trump. Shmelov says that in this way, on the one hand, he raises his significance in everybody's eyes, and on the other hand, he intimidates them by showing that he can create a media event out of nothing. It seems unlikely that one man could effectively sway an election. But Rikov was a pioneer in developing a new tactic for the Russian government. He helped the Kremlin figure out how they could enlist trolls to shift the media narratives, or at least create confusion about what's true and what's fake. And with the troll template in place, they were about to enlist a lot more of them. For America Abroad, I'm Molly Schwartz. For the past few years, reports have surfaced of buildings in St. Petersburg and Moscow teeming with trolls who produce blog posts, comments, and memes designed to influence opinions and sow confusion online. The most well-known of these is the Internet Research Agency. That's a troll farm in St. Petersburg. It's been recently sanctioned and indicted by the U.S., The Internet Research Agency is a shadowy organization. Much of what we know about it comes from a handful of Russian journalists who went undercover at the troll factory. Reporter Charles Maines recently met with one of them. Ludmila Savchuk first got wind of the troll farm back in 2014. A local activist and journalist in St. Petersburg, Savchuk started noticing websites and social media accounts that attacked Russia's opposition with a frequency and viciousness she hadn't seen before. She wondered who was doing this, why? And so when she later heard that the rumored organization behind the campaign, a company called the Internet Research Agency, was hiring writers, Savchuk jumped at the chance. I wanted to get in there to see how it works, of course. But the most important thing was to see if there was some way to stop it. Once on the inside, Savchuk says she was struck by the size of the IRA's operation. In a four-story office building on Savushkina Street, hundreds of trolls worked around the clock in rotating shifts. There were the social media seeders and commentators on one floor. On another, a visuals team cranking out videos and a seemingly endless supply of jokey political picture memes known as demo. Motivators. And Sobchuk says fake news websites also served as soldiers in the IRA's digital army. On their computers is a list of topics that they work on every day. Things like the U.S., EU, Vladimir Putin, the Russian military, the opposition, the achievements by Russia. Each worker has their daily quota to fill, or nightly. The factory never stopped, not for a second. Savchuk's own contribution to the IRA was as a paid blogger with an unusual beat. She was tasked with pretending to be a fortune teller, mixing musings on astrology and rare gemstones with the occasional pro-Kremlin talking point. It was subtle stuff, admits Savchuk, and proof that the IRA's mission was to reach as much of the Russian audience as possible. The trolling was aimed at Russians who don't watch state television because you need to capture every mind in Russia. And the trolls went after people of all tastes and all levels of education. In total, Savchuk spent two and a half months at the IRA before she published an expose in a local newspaper. By the time she left, she had zero doubt the IRA's work was coordinated with the Kremlin and with state media. And because of those ties, she says the trolls acted with impunity. Several opposition activists, friends of hers, were beaten by unknown assailants after the trolls published their home addresses. When police refused to file charges, Savchuk took the IRA to court. She even won a symbolic one-ruble victory over the troll farm back in 2015 over its labor practices. 
For this reason, Savchuk applauds the decision by special counsel Robert Mueller last February to indict 13 employees of the IRA as part of his ongoing investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 U.S. presidential elections. Propaganda is a giant machine that has no beginning and no end, and even no state boundaries. But we forget that real people make it, this propaganda. Sometimes our neighbors, sometimes our friends, and sometimes even our colleagues. Ultimately, she argues naming and shaming is the best way to stop Russia's troll army, and there are risks to her safety involved. Savchak knows that, too. Just as she knows that when it comes to exposing the trolls, she's just getting started. For America Abroad, I'm Charles Maines in St. Petersburg. Coming up after the break, it's not just Russian trolls who are causing headaches for the West. We'll look at how Russian state media creates chaos and confusion. There's no difference between a fact and a conspiracy theory or between an academic expert and some nutcase that they found off the street. For more on this, check out our website, pri.org slash America Abroad. You're listening to America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. This hour, sowing chaos, Russia's disinformation wars. Russian state media has evolved since the fall of the Soviet Union. It has a reach that extends far beyond Russia with international broadcasts in many languages. The problem is these broadcasts often mix up legitimate and fringe sources, which makes it hard for viewers and listeners to know what's real. Dasha Lisetsina has more. Peter Pomerantsev worked for 10 years in Russian media as a journalist and TV producer. He's now based at the London School of Economics, writing about propaganda and media. He first arrived in Moscow in 2001, a year after Putin came into power. And at the time, the mood in the media industry was souring. It appeared that the newfound freedom many journalists experienced in the decade following the collapse of the Soviet Union was now coming to an end. There was already kind of a current of thinking that saw information as being essentially a weapon or a tool. The content didn't matter. It only had a certain effect. And this way of thinking first started gaining mainstream traction after the fall of the USSR in the 90s. In 1999, Marshal Igor Sergeyev, then Minister of Defence, proposed that Russia, unable to compete militarily with the West, would engage in what he referred to as asymmetrical directions. In other words, information warfare. One educational military text from 2011 describes information warfare as, quote, an invisible radiation. A permanent thing that's happening all the time. And the difficulty that it poses is that it kind of blurs the lines between peace and war. When Putin became president, this militaristic way of thinking about information was co-opted by senior figures in media and politics. Vasily Gatov worked in Russia as a media executive for several of the biggest media companies in the 90s and 2000s. He saw firsthand how Putin's media strategy was developed by, namely, two figures, Mikhail Lysin, then Minister of Press, and Vladislav Surkov, one of Putin's chief aides and ideologues. Initially, they just wanted messages negative to Putin to be significantly diminished. But soon they realized that if they only try to silence criticism, they cannot produce as much news events that are needed. They also started to develop the agenda that they thought would comfortably support Putin's leadership. 
How this worked in practice is that Kremlin clerks would just send out their requests to news editors. What news to cover, what news not to cover, what should be emphasised and what should be skimmed over. It's not a formal organisation. It's not kind of a bunker underneath the Kremlin where a group of coke-enabled geniuses write Russian fakes. No, it's very dull clerks in Kremlin who write their necessities on paper and distribute it to media. The Kremlin's editorial direction is very broad. They just say what they want the overall message to be. So it's like a self-winding machine that knows Kremlin request, enthusiastically runs to fulfill it, and then claim their own achievement, even if the message was initiated in Kremlin. It's a new propaganda. It makes things that other people will replicate. And it very much kind of relies on self-censorship rather than on any other tool. It's up to the news editors to apply their creativity to produce stories that will push out the message. These people in RT or VGTRK or Pierre Canal, they say so not because they believe in this, but because they are afraid that if they if they're not saying that, they will sooner or later be replaced by someone who do it more enthusiastically. Russia has been called sort of a postmodern dictatorship, and by definition, there are no authors in postmodernism. There is no censor. No, that's and that's why it's quite flexible. It's like a goo. That's Peter Pomerantsev again. He says former Kremlin advisor Gleb Pavlovsky probably had the best description of Putin's media strategy. He called it a free jazz orchestra. So there's a tune, you know, everyone's doing nice in Tunisia, but then somebody can go off and do a jazz solo around that tune. So we know the tune is Hate America, but then you go and improvise. It's a very sort of freeform uh, approach in that sense. The mantra of Margarita Simanyan, who heads RT, Russia's state-run international news channel, is there is no such thing as objective reporting. The channel is funded by the Kremlin with an estimated budget of $230 million per year and services in English, German, Spanish and Arabic. What's funny is that they're using the language of alternative opinions. What's wrong with alternative opinions? You know, more free speech. That's kind of the language they've adopted, which is our language. Russian state media provides a platform for people with a wide variety of opinions nationalists, Brexiteers, people on the extreme right, even people on the left. Whoever needs it, really. And this is done to project messages that are divisive to the West. They push it to its logical absurdity. There's no difference between a fact and a conspiracy theory or between an academic expert and some nutcase that they found off the street. And that's much harder to find any way to kind of stand up to than if somebody's coming like, communism is a better system and you can prove that it's not. And that's the difficulty with this new kind of information warfare. How do you respond to a loose strategy that is not interested in pushing one single ideology or even really persuading people? Rather, it aims to undermine all ideologies and facts and to destabilise the very idea of a truth. For America Abroad, this is Dasha Lisitsina. In January of last year, U.S. intelligence agencies found that RT was Russia's state-run propaganda machine and that it was part of a Kremlin-backed effort to get Donald Trump elected president. And so it was forced to register as a foreign agent with the Justice Department. The channel will now have to file biannual reports to the U.S. government and flag its backing from the Russians. In response, Russia forced U.S.-funded media like Voice of America and Radio Free Europe Radio Liberty 
to register as foreign agents. In the UK, there's a similar debate over how to treat RT. Tommy Horner brings us this report from London. RT UK launched in 2014, and ever since, they've been going on the offensive against the BBC. The British Broadcasting Corporation is accused of staging chemical weapons attack. That salacious claim was in reference to a chemical weapons attack in Syria. RT accused the BBC of conjuring the whole thing up. RT's conduct demanded the scrutiny of Ofcom, Britain's independent media regulator charged with enforcing a code which requires impartiality. Within a year of being on air, RT's show Truth Seeker was cancelled as Ofcom hit RT with sanctions. Since then, RT UK has frequently been reprimanded, but they remain an agitator in British media, commonly airing coverage and analysis which is misleading or fabricated. RT would say they are simply providing the unvarnished Russian perspective. Speaking in Parliament, British Prime Minister Theresa May was blunt in her assessment of RT, as she conflated their work with other subterfuge by the Kremlin. It's seeking to weaponise information, deploying its state-run media organisations to plant fake stories and photoshopped images in an attempt to sow discord in the West and undermine our institutions. Her address in March came after the attack in Salisbury, England, of a former KGB spy and his daughter. When enemies of the Kremlin are poisoned in Britain, the finger of blame is quick to point to Moscow, and with good reason. That's from the BBC report of the story, linking the murder of one of their own journalists, a defector, back in 1978, to the Salisbury case today. They have clearly followed the narrative given by British intelligence that the attempted murder was ordered by the Russian government, whether through Putin or one of the many internal factions. Clearly, the practice of killing its enemies abroad has survived the collapse of the Soviet Union. Since then, sanctions on Russia have been levied by the UK, US and others. Meanwhile, RT UK have muddied the debate, airing a whole myriad of alternative theories as to who might be behind the Salisbury incident. Invited onto a panel for BBC television, which itself sparked controversy, RT UK host Afshin Ratanzi defended his network's coverage of the attack. Obviously, everyone condemns this attack. I mean, it's uh, terrible for the police officer and... Uh, these two uh, two spies. And I, can I just Did you say catch that? that you he just said two spies. All of Western media has reported the attack was on former spy Sergei Skripal, with his daughter Yulia merely innocent collateral. There is no evidence yet that she is in any way connected to Russian intelligence. So, what's the point of all this misinformation? Russia is determined to spread confusion. That's former BBC journalist Tim Luckhurst. He's now a journalism professor at the University of Kent. It is determined to challenge fact-based news reporting with an attempt to create chaos by suggesting that there is no such thing as objective truth which can be determined through the observation and interpretation of evidence, rather there are simply dozens of competing narratives. I'm not actually saying Russia didn't do it either. I'm just saying question what you're being told by the Prime Minister. Since the Salisbury spy poisoning, RT UK has become increasingly inflammatory, inviting a fresh investigation by Ofcom. Meanwhile, commentators have been muckraking politicians, mainly on the left of the spectrum, for even appearing on the network. They reason it lends false credibility and makes it hard for casual viewers to properly distinguish RT UK from honest media. Labour Party MP John McDonnell got a grilling on BBC television. 
One very clear thing that you could do is stop appearing on Russia Today, which has been described by one of your own ministers yeah. as a Kremlin propaganda vehicle. I think that's right now, and that's what I'll, I'll be doing. I can understand why people have up until now, because we've treated it like mm. every other television station. But former BBC journalist Tim Lockhurst says that's exactly how we should treat them. Prejudice stokes RT, so it is a matter best left for the non-partisan Ofcom. The impeccable way to treat broadcasters in a democracy is to allow them all to be regulated by the established regulator which exists for that purpose. In other words, RT will be treated in exactly the same way as the BBC. Is what it broadcasts objectively true? That doesn't mean that the question has been solved in the Houses of Parliament for Ofcom to do its dispassionate duty. A week and a half after the poisoning incident, MPs Chris Bryant and Stephen Doughty presented both sides of the argument in response to Prime Minister May's speech. Can I urge the Prime Minister to look at reviewing Russia Today's broadcasting licence and blocking their broadcasts in this building itself? Why should we be watching their propaganda in this Parliament? Attention to something I don't want to get lost to what the Prime Minister said, which was while our response must be robust, it must also remain true to our values. And as such, this country believes in a free media. We also believe in the rule of law and democracy. So far, Theresa May has backed away from endorsing any ban, instead calling for more funding of the BBC World Service and its efforts to broadcast fact-based news to audiences abroad. Now, if Parliament bans RTUK, Russia have threatened to retaliate. Me, I can tell you directly, not a single British media outlet will work in our country if they shut down RT. For now, Prime Minister May isn't keen to see cultural diplomacy scrambled by any imposed silence. For America Abroad, I'm Tommy Horner in London. So what exactly is the difference between Russian media and other state-backed outlets like the BBC or Voice of America? Here to help us answer that question is Jeffrey Gedman. He's a senior fellow at Georgetown University. He's also the former president of Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty. That's a U.S.-backed broadcaster which sends news and information to parts of Europe, Eastern Europe, Central Asia, and the Middle East. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Okay, so you're part of basically state-run media. What were its goals? Well, the goals were and the goals remain to provide accurate, reliable, fair-minded news to countries that either have closed systems, dictatorships, or countries that are in transition where fully mature, well-developed media do not yet exist. You would not categorize that as American propaganda? No, not at all. These U.S. international media are playing a very long-term game according to the assumption that it advances our goals and our values when people are well-informed about what's happening in their countries and in the world. You know, we know from testimonials during the Cold War and when the Berlin Wall fell in 1989 that these news outlets provided a kind of oxygen for civil society. It gave people a chance to understand more about what democracy entails, not only the opportunities, but also the responsibilities. Now, if you fast forward, even in this moment of what people call the post-truth era, people want accurate, reliable, truthful information. So... These outlets are government-funded, obviously, sponsored. Were you ever told you need to do this story or you need to have this perspective? 
The short answer is no, and let me make a distinction. So I led something called RFERL, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, a nonprofit funded by the American taxpayer, actually. And in my particular case, set up by law, I had editorial independence. Did I have interaction with the White House, the U.S. State Department, American embassies abroad? Absolutely. But I never, I can honestly say, had pressure to add something, subtract something, or change something. And that's embedded in U.S. law. The distinction I want to make is there's something else called the Voice of America. And it's a little bit different. It is part of the federal government. It runs some government editorials. It, too, does real journalism, but it's a little bit more of a hybrid. Okay, let's uh, get your perspective on the Russian side of it. What do you think the goals are of Russian state-run media? That's a great question. I think you have to see that in the context of what are the goals of Russian foreign policy. What does Russia want? It wants to divide Europe. It is fond of the idea of spheres of influence. It wants to make organizations like NATO and the EU weaker, not stronger. And it wants to build Russia up by cutting the United States down. State-run media is in service of those larger foreign policy goals. It's not a bad job because it's kind of easy to do. We are our own worst enemies these days. Uh, Our problems are chiefly homegrown. Our vulnerabilities are great. And so what, what does Russian state media do? It exploits. It drops poison in wounds. It stirs the pot. It makes life, tries to make life a bit harder for us. And so if you were running Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty now, how would you counter-program that? Well, first, I would continue providing this news accurate, reliable, fair-minded. I think there's a great need for deeper investigative reporting. Number two, mostly what we do is we see this inundation of, of Russian propaganda and disinformation, and we play defense. I think there has to be a kind of offensive strategy, too, and the Russian people ought to know accurately and honestly what their rulers are up to, how they operate at home and abroad. I think there the United States, as a government, has to play a tougher game with Russia and either make sure that things are reciprocal, I mean, RT, gets to reach people across the West. Well, we need to work on a reciprocal basis. Or we need to go back to old-fashioned methods of transmitting and broadcasting from abroad. Jeffrey Gedman is senior fellow at Georgetown University, also at the Atlantic Council, and he's the former president of Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty from 2007 to 2011. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Coming up, the European Union is struggling to figure out how to counter Russian disinformation without antagonizing the Kremlin. The high representative doesn't want to hurt the Russians. She should reconsider her position. Just tuning in? Catch the full episode and past programs by subscribing to America Abroad on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Sowing Chaos, Russia's disinformation wars on America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. European Union members, especially NATO members, are continually attacked on social media by Russian trolls. But instead of banding together to fight that threat, Europeans are arguing amongst themselves over how best to do that, and even whether to do it, Terry Schultz reports. For Russia, the European Union's top security official has warned, words are just another weapon of war. In Russia's official military doctrine, 
they described the use of false data and destabilizing propaganda as another type of armed force. EU Security Commissioner Julian King constantly warns EU states they're on the front line of the Kremlin's massive and mighty disinformation campaign and urges them to step up their defenses. But in the drafting of the new strategy announced April 26th, sources say there was heated debate amongst EU officials whether to mention Moscow at all. King reportedly favored doing so, and Russia is named three times in the 17-page document. But King acknowledges, with EU governments in the lead on security issues, the European Commission's mandate is limited. The Commission's main role is to try and head off any fragmentation that might arise from different member states' responses to such activities. Too late. The flagship initiative the EU has launched to counter Russian disinformation is under fire from all sides and lacks both financial and political support from its own founders at the European Commission. Some critics say the East Stratcom task force, made up of just 14 staffers, mostly on loan from their own governments or EU jobs, is too small to be effective. Others say the unit goes too far, with its website called EU versus Disinfo, which identifies media outlets publishing what's deemed distorted information. Leading the attack? The Dutch government. After three articles from newspapers in the Netherlands were called out by EU versus Disinfo, the outraged Dutch parliament voted to spearhead an EU-wide push to have the unit disbanded. It maintains that position even though the pieces in question were removed from the website's wall of shame. Dutch democracy activist Arya Neaboer vocally supports the anti-Stratcom campaign. He says that doesn't mean he's a fan of Russian President Vladimir Putin, whom he calls a gangster leading a gangster state, but he doesn't want the EU to overreach either. I think the state should simply refrain from uh, interfering with this whole area of media, free speech and so on. In Europe, we should not pick up this bad Russian habit. Another critic is EU lawyer Alberto Alamano, who filed a legal challenge against the methods used by the EU versus disinfo analysts. His complaint of insufficient rigor in fact-checking was rejected by the EU ombudsman. But the European Commission's new strategy does follow the kind of approach Alamano has been recommending, targeting amplification methods. Something has to be done, hence the suggestion to take a more holistic approach that goes upstream rather than downstream by preventing platforms to easily allow individuals and bots in particular to spread the news. Coming from a country where resisting Russian pressure is just part of life, Finnish newspaper columnist Jarmo Mäkelä shakes his head when asked about the battles inside EU leadership on whether or not to call out the Kremlin. Mäkelä says the Finnish government has repeatedly warned EU High Representative Federica Mogherini she's risking the unity and security of the 28 member states by her failure to more robustly empower the East Stratcom unit. We who see it every day find it hard to believe that there are countries which ignore this phenomena. The high representative is not uh, very interested in expanding this operation because she obviously doesn't want to hurt the Russians. I would say that she should reconsider her position. 
At the very least, the new EU initiative will force online platforms to create and conform with a new code of practice and intends to force regulations if measurable progress isn't made by October. Makala says he expects EU member states will gradually come to the conclusion on their own that they must do more to counter the false narratives being spread about them. But he says at this pace, there will be a lot of damage done before then. For America Abroad, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. While there's a lot of hand-wringing on both sides of the Atlantic, RAND analyst Andrew Radin notes Russian disinformation campaigns do have their limits. Russia's ability to manipulate our system is not magic, it's not unlimited, and they don't necessarily always have a particularly sophisticated understanding of the United States. And we can take lessons from the Cold War. When President Reagan came into office in 1981, he said publicly that Soviet leaders will reserve unto themselves the right to lie and do other things to serve their purposes. William Courtney is a former ambassador to Georgia and Kazakhstan. He says one way to counter Russian disinformation is through education. For Western governments to continue to explain to their own peoples and to Russians how Russia is using these tools is an important part of educating people and helping them become more resilient in dealing with those kinds of threats. So meanwhile, it seems like Russia is on the offensive. How should the United States react? So the basic U.S. strategy, which has really been in place since Russia intervened in Ukraine in 2014, has been to raise the cost to Russia of aggression or malign activities abroad. Since 2014, real inflation-adjusted household incomes have gone down maybe 15% or so. Sanctions that the Trump administration imposed have driven down Russian stock markets quite considerably, especially for some larger companies. So Russia is likely to pay an increasing price for being a great power spoiler. Do you think the Trump administration is doing all it should be doing right now? So the Trump administration, a better way to look at it is not just Trump administration, but U.S. foreign policy. And that's affected by Congress. Congress passed a major new sanctions act. So there's been a lot of continuity between the Obama administration and the Trump administration. After the election interference, President Obama, the next month, took away from Russia access to two vacation estates in the East Coast that he said were being used for intelligence purposes. Then President Trump now has taken away two other facilities. So Russia's lost four major intelligence collection facilities here in the United States. So that's the kind of response that raises the cost to Russia of carrying out these activities. And there seems to be a pretty strong bipartisan consensus that this is the right policy. That's William Courtney, former ambassador to Georgia and Kazakhstan. All this comes as the 2018 U.S. midterm elections are inching closer. Tech companies have taken some measures to combat fake news online. Facebook and Twitter have promised to label all political and issue ads and offer more ad transparency. But ultimately, it comes down to us, what we believe or what we want to believe when we read the news. This Hour of America Abroad was written and edited by Rob Sachs and produced by Shoshi Shmulevitz with additional production help from Flan Williams. Nolan Schneider provided our theme music and assisted with sound design. Audio engineering support was provided by Mario Saavedra at KCRW. 
You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes or by visiting our website, PRI.org, where you can also find extended interviews and exclusive content pertaining to this and other programs. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this show is provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you. PRI, Public Radio International.